I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Carrie Nelson. And we love to watch. We love to watch Horses Drown in Sadness. No, not Bojack Horseman. Hello. We're just uh, we're just getting the the gang back together to to pick up a a good book and whoa! I got sucked into a never ending story. Did you watch the Peter? Did you watch the Peter? <laughs> Did you watch uh, that the is movie? Actually, Did you, that yeah, is actually first... what I thought the movie was. I thought he was going to open a book and then I thought he was going to yeah. get like fall into it, and that never happened. So I was just like kind of tapping my watch for the first thirty minutes of the movie, waiting for that to happen. I was like, oh no, he mostly just he mostly just watches the movie. Did you get this movie confused with a little movie? Called the Page Master. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So we we have a we have a jam packed episode that kind of started as um, our second week of eighties fantasy movies, and has now turned into this huge uh, encyclopedic look at the never ending story that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, first, if you've never heard our podcast before, where we love to watch, we like to talk about. Uh, movies, but movies, uh, not just not just any old movies. We research. We put them into very specific categories uh, in groups of four. I don't know why, because there's four faces on Mount Rushmore, and <laughs> we're patriotic above all else. <laughs> and so, so we group them into four, and we go, we shake them up, and we say, "Hey, let's talk about these four this month and this month it's dark fantasy movies it's our second episode on the never-ending story and also a bonus content at the end about the never-ending story uh part two and also i read the fucking book so we're we're gonna have a lot to talk about uh which is good because if you heard our our first episode of amy's fantasy movies last week on the Black Cauldron, uh, it was just a Peter and Aaron episode and i believe in a 90 minute episode there was about uh 20 uh, 20 minutes of movie talk and uh, 70 minutes of goofing around uh, bullshit nonsense. So it's it's good that we're we, – because we have so much to cover today that we're going to be reined in a little and need to focus because we have guests over uh, because we're joined <laughs> once again by Carrie Nelson. Carrie, welcome back on our show. Thank you for having me back. I missed you guys. It's lovely to we see you again. We missed you too. Yes, this is so great to have you back, and especially for uh, we were able to find something that I believe is near and dear to you. Is the, is the, the movie something that you grew up with, if, if I'm not mistaken? I didn't grow up with it, but I saw it for the first time about a year ago in circumstances oh. that made it very 
uh, near and dear. So uh, yeah, I, I I have I have a lot of good feelings about this movie. Because yeah, I'm excited you, to hear you snatched it up kind of right away, and so I was I assumed that you had a history with it, but that's like really even better that it's not just like I watched it a lot when I was eight because I imagine that's most people's story with this movie. Are yeah. you throwing shade on my uh, my experience yeah, with this movie? Yeah, a lot movie? of stories with this movie are probably really boring. They're probably like, oh, I watched it as a kid, so I still like it. But like, you watched it as you know a competent adult, uh, you know. Uh, so, what you have to say about it is definitely more interesting than what anybody else would have to say about it. Aaron, when were you exposed to the Neverending Story? Um, well, I feel like there's three ways that you can you can watch this movie for the first time. The first one <laughs> is as a kid. Second one is uh, through drugs at any time through junior high to adulthood. <laughs> That's the good way to get exposed to it. And the third way is the secret way we just found out from Carrie. We don't know what it is yet. Maybe we'll find out. Maybe it's not a story for us, Peter. We don't know. But uh, those are the only three ways. Carrie's are secret you, like, way. internalizing drugs. this book now? <laughs> yeah. Everything is just, uh, it's a turducken. Reality is a constant turducken of just one thing inside the other one. Uh, so, yeah. So, I'm really excited to get into it. Carrie, is there anything else you'd like to uh, introduce yourself to our audience? Obviously, we did three things about yourself last time. But uh, if our audience doesn't know you, you want to give them some set stuff. Like, here's here's my CV. Here's the shit you need to know about me to understand what's going on in Carrie's head. Oh, God. Shoot. Uh, I, <laughs> um, I work in documentary. Uh, I do archive. I, uh, live in New York, which is the city of great oh! sense. <laughs> but actually, so, so the last time I was on, you, you, you asked me where I was from as a way of segueing into the New York voices. However, I've lived in New York for about a decade, but the place where I'm actually from, where I lived for the first two decades of my life, oh, uh, is the pla- is a Britain. place that has even more make funnable accents than New York. Do oh, you can you Britain. guess what that place is? Do you need a drum roll? Is it Britain? <laughs> no. Uh, oh, is it, I'm is a it chimney Boston? sweep. It is Boston. <laughs> oh fucking Carrie left Boston. Not strong enough to fucking stay in Boston, huh? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think that was less of a Boston accent and Brad and more of a Brad Pitt and Snatch accent. Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna need to warm up. <clears throat> mm, mm. I did Dunkin spring this donuts. new character on you. It would have been great if you could have instead of been from Boston, uh, been from some area where we've perfected the voices like uh, <laughs> like whisper town usa uh slugville uh australia where we're all chimney sweeps yeah um, or uh you know a nerd town where aaron's from oh yes i'm peter oh, i'm the mayor of nerd town actually but yeah boston we'll work on an accent for you so the next time that you're on oof oof amazing you're gonna get roasted Ooh, ah. can't wait <laughs> ready yeah <laughs> all right well without further ado uh we're gonna talk about a, an area where uh honestly the biggest mystery of all is what their accents sound like because <laughs> we don't know um and it's a little area called fantasia do you guys want to start talking about the never-ending story yes please yes please Turn around. <laughs> so, um, probably, probably what's about to play, but maybe, maybe not. 
course, never-ending story. We we may mention a little bit about uh, as I read the book some some things that maybe differ that or that I found interesting about the book, uh, and then at the end we're really going to talk about uh, our experience of watching Never-ending Story two. Me for the hundredth time. Uh, and Carrie and Peters for the first time. But before we do all that, we're going to start with a little something we call alternate taglines. And I'm s- slowing down my speech because I just remembered it's it's me that's alternate taglines. And I didn't prepare anything. <laughs> so <laughs> the, we'll start with uh, the never ending story. Fake news. Never any story. <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> this is sounding more like the never ending segment. Um, so 90 second recap. It's not really 90 seconds. Um, so never ending Quick story. Quick recap. Hey, respect the rebrand. Yeah. Okay. 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 Uh, never ending story begins with uh, a sad little boy uh, named Bastion who uh, lost his mother and uh, his father was apparently replaced with a robot. Uh, and uh, Bastion is getting the shit kicked out of him at school, like, brutally over and over again. He lives a very sad life. Uh, he's doing terrible in school, um, and so he goes to school, realizes he's late for school. He uh, goes to a bookstore to hide from some bullies one day, and it's like a weird bookstore where there's like a creepy old man who's like, like, you don't want no piece of this. Get out of here. Like He's kind of giving him the Tim Meadows treatment. And walk yeah. hard. You don't want none of this <laughs> you, books. You don't want none of this books. They're going to be way better than any other book you've been reading. Said, so, like, your books are safe. Like, he, like, kind of, like, edgelords him. And he, the, the the old guy steps out of the room and Bastion steals one of the books. Uh, the never-ending story. He steals it, runs to school. He realizes that he's late for class and, uh, confoundingly doesn't go home, but instead hides in the attic of the school. That's in uh, in the book, his dad works at home. Oh, that was a thing in the eighties. He's a scientist. <laughs> oh yeah, doing, you know those home he's scientists. Doing, he's only doing home science. He's doing yeah, he's doing home science. He's, that's it, what he it, does. This is true. He has a home lab. Look. This is he Walter in Germany? White? I don't know. I was going to say, in 2018, they call that a meth lab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's Walter White. Uh, I mean, it is Germany. So, mm-hmm. um, so uh, his dad, who definitely doesn't cook meth at home. Okay, um, <laughs> that we know he, of. He starts to read the book, and then we realize the kid gets to watch the movie happen with us for 90% of the runtime. Um, we're introduced to a cast of characters. Uh, a big rock guy, um, a Mad Hatter guy that rides on a slug, uh, it's a, ra- a, it's a racing boy snack, that rides a bird. Know. Are any of these characters really that consequential? The rock biter is. The rock yeah. biter is definitely. Um, he has the best monologue in the in the movie, I think, or best like lines in the movie. Oh, um, would be something. This was nothing. And he's staring at his hands, and he's like. Yeah. These used to be good hands. Like, that's uh, really one of the best uh, line deliveries in the movie. Anyway, yeah. so they are just sitting around discussing this rock biter, this, like, wolf orc guy, and uh, this Mad Hatter sitting around discussing a plague falling down on Fantasia. That plague, uh, they rush off to this uh, kingdom to see this uh, childlike empress, uh, but she is sick. 
Uh, one of her assistants comes out and says uh, she's sick, so we're all doomed unless someone finds this thing that makes her better. He calls upon a great warrior, a uh, young Native American boy, um, or a young white boy, a Native American face, uh, shows up and he says, I will take on this challenge. So he takes on the hero's journey and he uh, ventures off. He goes through, some of this is done in voiceover, some of this we see he goes through a, a Swamp of Sadness. Um, where else does he go? It goes really quick. It's like Swamp of Sadness um, meets the turtle, heads yes, he to the, the oracle, heads to the oracle, sees Bastion through the, goes through the oracle tests, and then everything kind of crumbles around them, and then meets the um, Mark, the the werewolf guy, and Falcor is in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Falcor is mostly inconsequential in this. He's he's a little bit more important than the sequel, but Falcor is, is like something that's burned its way into people's consciousness. Like that was the only thing I knew about this movie, except it involved a book and it involved a big dog dragon. Um, it's, a, it's a luck dragon, so, Peter. What? It's a luck dragon. A luck dragon. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I, I still don't understand any of the proper nouns in this in this movie like, at all. <laughs> like, like, I think that is some shit that got lost in not reading the book for sure, Aaron. I'm going to ask you to finish the, the rest of the recap. <laughs> okay, so, I don't well, understand. Well, it's not, it's not from the book, so okay. I don't understand, particularly in the end, how Bastion enters into the world. I don't understand that piece of it. I think I'm going to add some context that, and context that I just learned too, because I had never read the book and I have seen both of these movies hundreds of times. Whatever that number is where you just, it's at the library that has videos that's two blocks from your house and you can walk there and watch it whenever. Like that amount of times <laughs> growing up. Um, yeah, so he meets the Gmork, who is not the nothing, but is kind of like, hey, you're actually just a because uh, he finds all these pictures of himself doing these things etched into to stone. And this like kind of wolf werewolf creature that's been chasing him is like, yeah, don't you know who you are? Like, you're just a character in a book. You're not real. And someone else has been watching your adventures and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, he's saved by Falcor. And at this point, uh, the Fantasia has crumbled. It's like little asteroids and uh, nothingness um, or as depicted like space, it looks like. And they go to the childlike Emptress and she's like, hey, thank thank you for completing your quest. You find out that the quest itself was actually just to basically hook a reader into the story. So they were interested enough to get to the point of the book where this empress was there and that he could give her a new name. Bastion comes to realize that, oh, he's like when he screamed and they've heard it in the book, like he's he's actually a part of the story. He gives the empress a new name and then like he gets the thing around his neck, the Arin, which enables him to grant wishes. And his first wish is to ride Falcor in the real world and chase the bullies that chased him. Uh, and then it ends in a very strange way that I guess never even – registered for me but it just ends with this narration and there's not really narration in the movie that says bastion and falcor went on other adventures too but that's a different story it's like oh okay <laughs> i i kind of like the idea behind it that like almost like the the theory behind a lot of dramas that it's like a slice of life like we're seeing we're not seeing the beginning of someone's life we're not seeing the end of it we're seeing just like a particularly interesting moment in time um yeah i kind of like that perspective on it and the idea that's more developed in the sequel that's uh every time you open the book every time you read the book it like changes 
So here's what's crazy. Um, yeah. That is a invention of the sequel. Really? And so that is like the, yeah, that's a really good idea that the sequel has that's not a part of this. So let's let's set up a little bit of this movie first, and then we're going to get into our, our thoughts on it. But let's give a little context, because I found out so much in researching uh, for this that kind of led us down this path of, of wanting uh, Peter and Carrie to watch the sequel and then me being so interested in 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 reading the book. So they go to make this movie. It comes out, very popular book, 1979. Uh, it's all German money behind it, so who knows about that? But um, uh, they get first-time director Wolfgang Peterson, who's gr- who's great director. Uh, kind of fell apart the last fifteen years, but uh, made a lot of very good movies. Uh, and they made go to one make of the, the best movie. war movies of all time in Das Boot. Of course, Das Boot, and then the second best war movie of all time, Never Ending Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Has he made other kid. children's movies? No. Uh, it's been basically adult fair. So yeah. this well, in Germany, Das Boot is a children's story. <laughs> fair. <laughs> they're, in Germany, they're made all, of all movies than we are. Yeah, in, in in Germany, all movies are children's movies because uh, all those moving pictures are for children. <laughs> <laughs> My only German accent is the one weird Nazi from Raiders. Uh, anyways, so they go to make this um this book and they go or make this movie and they're like, you know, we're gonna split it in two. Because this is what – and this is the thing that blew my fucking mind. The sequel is actually the second – or an attempt to do the second half of the book. The part where Bastion s- speaks to the childlike empress and gives her a name is the midway point of the book. At that point, Bastion immediately goes into Fantasia, destroys the world, and kind of creates a new one through his wishes. And then the rest of the book, which we'll talk about later, is him losing himself to these wishes and losing his memory and losing who he is. And also, the whole movie's themes are – or the whole book's themes are kind of about like, you know, Fantasia's falling apart to nothing because humans have stopped reading. And stop paying attention to these fantasy worlds and literature and why that's dangerous for the real world as well. That like fantasies and books and like literature and fiction, that's like a, a effective use of humans' um, storytelling abilities. But when they're not put into that effort, the storytelling abilities go to uh, lying in the real world and telling fictions in the real world, which is extremely damaging to our world. And then nothing is depicted in the book is not like they try to kind of they do. I think they do a good job of trying to get at it. But it really is like nothing like it's like they describe looking at stuff and it's like they've gone blind or they're going blind. Like it's not missing. It's just they can't see it anymore. And it can be like just random parts of a person's body, whole areas. It's just like it's like pages fading off uh, or uh, words fading off a page. And it's also kind of in a, when you blow it up to the size of the nothing, it's such a compellingly creepy cosmic horror thing. Yeah. Oh, Man, no, it freaked the shit out of me when I was a kid. Like, because it was it was so hard to wrap my head around this idea of like when they're like, so a hole, like something disappears. There's like a hole or you you picture a divot or something missing. And when when the rock biter's like, no, that would be something. I mean, nothing. That was like an existential – a minor existential crisis for me as like a eight-year-old. So so they, they kind of are like, okay, well, this, this really transfers into a different protagonist and almost a completely different story in the second half. And it's a 450-page novel. So they split the book in two. Well, the author, guy by the name of Michael Endy, thought that was bullshit <laughs> um, and completely missed what he was going for in the book and completely missed the themes 
completely missed the point of why the fucking story is called the never ending story. He was like, no, no. And, and I do mean in that tone because he sued while the movie was in production to stop it from getting made. Uh, he was not happy with that. And then he spent the next few years after the movie came out and he's like, this is all bullshit. I hate this. Uh, trying his best to stop a sequel from being made, uh, which is why there's a six year wait and why basically all of the creative people besides and the actors and everyone else essentially all goes away for the sequel. And you have this movie that I had to – that I assumed as a kid was a standard, oh, this was a popular um, movie. Let's make a sequel and do a different story. Not that that was literally uh, a lot of pieces of the second half of the book in place. We'll talk about that at the end of this episode. Uh, so that's kind of crazy. And it also really explains something about this movie that I never understood as a kid. So as you met, as you kind of alluded to, Peter, in your plot recap, stuff goes really fucking quickly. Like the horse dies and they're in that swamp of sadness in like 25 minutes in this movie. Uh, it's only a 90-minute movie and it does feel like it's just going boom, 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 boom. And as a kid and as an adult, I kind of assumed that – they took a long book and condensed it. No. It moves about that quickly in the book as well. It's that that everything you see in the in the first 90 minutes is only about the first 150 pages of a 450 page book. Mm-hmm. And I and some of that is um weirdly frustrating. I think for me uh before they get to the swamp, which the swamp is a very compelling image, it's very ominous and gray and bleak. And it um, uses that as part of the storytelling, right? It's not just yeah. like, adding color to it. It's all about this this swamp of sadness. And what I found kind of frustrating is that he leaves the, the crystal castle or whatever. And then they say some shit like, and then he went over some badass mountains and did some cool shit in there. Anyways, he made it to a swamp and you're like, but... I want to. I want to see the badass mountains. I want to see the. I want to see him fighting. <laughs> yeah, some shit. exactly, like, exactly. Which is why I assumed that there was like chapters they didn't include. Why and even tell I'm, me about it? I am well. <laughs> the whole book moves like that, and it it gets to so many different places, and I really like it. But yeah, as a kid, I'm like, man, there must have been some fucking cool shit that I was in that book <laughs> didn't get to see. No. Nope. <laughs> um. So let's 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 transition there. Let's talk a little bit about our experience with the movie. Peter, I'm I'm excited to hear your thoughts. This is your first time watching it. Um, you, I'll let you go first uh, if you don't mind, because I do want to mention that you had watched part of this, turned it off at that horse uh, drowning in muck scene, um, and had never watched it again because you're like, fuck this movie. <laughs> they killed a horse in the first twenty minutes, <laughs> and. The last time I'll mention the book until we get to the change to the second movie, or maybe the last time, I do want to let you know that uh, in the book, Atrax, the horse, can talk, and that makes that scene almost (laughs) – if you thought it was mean in the movie, it is like like, um, like someone purposely tried to hurt children that could possibly be reading this book because oh, in the movie in the movie atreus like don't be sad horse come on fight fight in the book all that happens but then the horse is like no i have nothing to live for please just let me die i'm miserable no life has come out of me i want to die i want it to- is like- bojack horseman <laughs> 
That's horrific. <laughs> he is he is describing uh, his deep, dark, sudden depression and how he wants his friend to, to, let, to, to let him drown in the swamp. And <laughs> I couldn't believe that. Uh, but it was it was only funny having heard that like Peter's like nope just the horse because in the movie you could almost just surmise that the horse has got stuck in the mud and he's got no choice the book makes it very clear that the the, the horse has reached its ending point and is uh, ready to leave this earth uh, through drowning uh, horribly in the mud. I like to think he talks like Mr. Ed, too. It's like, the only way I can imagine. I'm gonna face the dark beyond. <laughs> yeah. Do not, do not cry for me. Well, this, this movie fulfills the Mr. Ed theme song. Oh, torture a horse, of course. Of <laughs> torture course. a horse, of course, of course. <laughs> a horse is torture a horse, of course. It's like the idea of, a, of an animal dying. Like, at least an animal... I think of one of the beauty, beautiful things about animals is being their, like, simplicity. And yeah. how they have, like, very pure emotions if they do have emotions. And, like, sometimes we, like, project emotions on them when they're really just, like... I'm just staring at a wall. There's nothing going on here. Um, so, like... That gives me a little solace in that scene. The idea that it doesn't actually realize exactly what's going yeah. on. It's just confused. The idea yeah. that it's fully cognizant and has a human-like intelli- intelligence. And, ba- and begging does. for death to his 10-year-old master. Yeah. <laughs> it's like if Old Yeller ended with the dog going, I know I'm a little sick, but I have puppies. Please <laughs> don't shoot me, friend. <laughs> it's just a scene in a zombie movie where the guy's yeah. like, yeah, it's a bite, but it's not a bad bite. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then it's, it's like it's like I won't ask you to put an arrow in my head. Just let the mud take me. <laughs> um, so Please, I want to experience was... every last moment of pain. <laughs> I didn't realize this was Passion of Joan of Arc, but for a horse. Um, okay, so uh, my experience was I watched this movie uh, with my mother on the couch as a kid. We watched it together. Because my mom wanted to see it. She thought it was like a cool sounding movie. We started watching it. I wasn't super into it. Uh, And then there is uh, a scene of a horse uh, drowning. We both start crying. And my mom goes, do you want to watch Tintin instead? And I go, yeah. And then we watch Tintin instead. That is as far as Sadly, I've ever made the one where anymore. Tintin's dog gets put down. Yeah, it was the episode <laughs> where Snowy gets mange, or Snowy gets a, a rabies, and they got to put him down. <laughs> so yeah, that's as far as I made it the first time. So I'd never seen it. Um, the interesting thing about it is that the general sense of malaise and depression and this sort of... Um, world beating down on you and trying to take your humanity away and your dignity away it pervades the whole movie yeah like it's way more it's way more tonally in keeping with pan's labyrinth than any other 80s fantasy movies i think yeah um, yeah that's a good comparison because pan's labyrinth is about you know a daydreaming boy who daydreams uh to escape the indignities of his life school bullying and a dead mom and uh you know performing poorly in school and just like his parent his dad isn't very compassionate at all that's very like pan's labyrinth to me and the idea that like the only spots of joy we see in is in their fantasy life their everyday life looks fucking miserable as an adult kind of liked how um the stakes of it 
It didn't feel like it was like, if I don't get the magic emerald, what's going to happen? It's like, oh, this entire universe is collapsing in on itself and it's maybe your fault. I don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That sort of uh, power really drives the movie forward. And I think the second one, um, by losing the nothingness and replacing (laughs) it. What about the emptiness? The emptiness, excuse me. Uh, by replacing the emptiness with um, a more traditional Oh, no, sorry. Uh, it is the nothingness in the first one and the second one. They like, oh, now it's the emptiness. <laughs> and yeah, that's that's kind of my experience with it. I did enjoy it quite a bit. It's not going to be an all-timer for me because it's just such a strange movie. I was very surprised at uh, the stakes and how it involved me personally in a way that I'm uh, not used to children's movies, uh, feeling now, and and we should we should let everyone know. I mean, Peter's seen Little Big League, so <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the competition's stiff for children's movies affecting him. Um, <laughs> okay, sorry, Carrie. Um, what? Yeah, my life don't is mind actually sharing. based on Angela's Ashes, and even that movie didn't do anything for me. Uh, That's a German children's movie. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. Carrie, quick. Uh, I never watched it as a kid. Um, I remember seeing the movie in the video store and being afraid to rent it because (laughs) here's why. Because it was either either the title was lying to me and it really did have an ending or it didn't have an ending and then I would be stuck watching this movie for the rest of my life and I would get in so much trouble and like I would miss school and my parents would be so mad at me and like I didn't want to get in trouble so I'm like I just shouldn't watch this movie I just shouldn't go there that is the most adorable thing I've ever heard on this podcast yeah, I was a amazing. very weird child yes oh um, my god I don't want to get grounded for never doing anything again I love that so, so much so I never watched it. Um, I, you know, grew up and realized that it probably did actually end, but I never had an impetus to watch it until a year ago when a good friend of mine was talking about how she grew up with it. She loved it. And I imagine you guys have probably had a similar situation where if you're if you're with your non major movie watching friends and they find out that there's a movie that oh, they love yeah. that you've never seen, they're like, oh, my God, we have to watch it. And I'm usually always up for that because I always want to see things that are important to people I care about. So I was like, great. Yeah, let's watch it. So we make plans to watch this movie. And I was nervous going into it because I figured I thought it was going to be one of those situations where if you miss a certain movie, if, if, if you watch something too late, it's not going to have yeah. the same effect on you. So I yeah. was pretty convinced that this was going to be that. Um, and it wasn't. It was... Of the four of us, we were there with our significant others. And of the four of us watching it, I was the only one who stayed awake through the whole movie. Because I was so... It was, you know, a Friday after work. Everyone was exhausted. I was, like, deep in it. It messed me up in the best ways. It's such a weirdly emotionally impactful story. And I wasn't expecting that at all. I'm really glad I didn't see it as a kid because I think it would have been terrifying in maybe not good ways that I wouldn't have wanted to revisit it but it's I think it's a movie that can work as well for adults as it does for kids maybe better so, I agree yeah and and I think that's why so my experience with it is that I watched both 
the sequel and this as a kid. Uh, Carrie, I did have the same question. I remember I, I, my friend Casey had the movie, the first one, and I was like, oh, how long is that? Like, <laughs> I, you know, but I, I liked the first one, but I didn't love it. Like, I liked some of the imagery. I liked the characters. And I fell in love with the sequel because it felt like the sequel gave me everything I wanted from the first movie as a child. It was like, first of all, the guy that's reading the book, I, it sucked that he didn't get to be in the movie. You know, the, the kid, our hero, gets to be in the movie, the in the, in, in the in the Fantasia world. He gets to ride Falcor more. He gets to be a part of it like the movie itself has a little more humor it has a easier to follow like a to b plot like there's this witch she's bad she's taking the souls out of everything bastion and treyu and falcor team up to stop her like and it still had a lot of the weird fantastical creature stuff that made me like the first one as well because i really i've always liked since a kid and like it even more now this this like crazy amalgamation fantasy world like not just like there's orcs and there's like medieval fantasy and and there's or like muppet labyrinth fantasy i love this let's just think of all the craziest stuff that we can think of and put them all in this magical world and that's rare um it's one of the reasons why i liked um the narnia books as a kid because they they didn't have like one set type of fantasy creatures a lot of times they would just keep finding other weird stuff like fucking santa claus or an island of foot people like it didn't it didn't matter it was all in one and, and i thought both of these movies did that which is what attracted me to them so much as i got in high school and rewatched them i thought the never ending story 2 was a little more uh kid-like and i you know started to really like really like the first one I probably haven't seen either of them in about 10 years. And this was such a magical experience for me going back and watching the first one. Because when you when you haven't when there's a movie that you've loved as a kid and appreciated and lo- liked a lot as a high school or college kid, it does feel like your best hope in having these somewhat nostalgia revisits is that like the credit you gave it at a certain age is going to pay off. Like you're going to be like, "Oh, yep, I still like that." That wasn't a drag. I wasn't holding on to some old memories. And, like, I legitimately enjoyed that. I wasn't looking at the clock. It met my expectations that I had set for myself. Mm-hmm. That's, like, the best thing you can hope for, usually. Every once in a while, you have this amazing experience where a movie that you already considered, like, I think my top one, my first top 100 list when I was in college I made, like, had the never-ending story on it. When a movie exceeds that and you're like, oh, fuck, I didn't give it enough credit and this is actually even more amazing and I already considered it amazing than than I remembered it. And that was my experience watching this movie. Like, it really felt like I picked up on stuff that I didn't pick up on before, like the fact that the viewer of the movie is referenced directly, which is some cool meta stuff I always enjoy from these uh, fantasy movies, like the sadness and the gloom and everything else. Like, I really started to understand a little more what the movie was going for. I liked, like, like everything about it just screamed like, oh, I have never been giving this movie enough credit, which is kind of how I ended up down this rabbit hole that led me to read the book. I just had that wonderful movie-going experience where you finish watching something and you go, I want more. I want to learn more. I want to read more. Maybe I'll watch it again. I don't know, but I loved this. And that – so that was – I really was excited 
that we were picking it to begin with. But where I ended up at the end of all this is like, I want to watch it again right now. Yeah. Uh, just the first one or do you want to rewatch the second one as well? I'll probably never watch the second one again. <laughs> I think this, I think the second one makes the first one better because the second one really creates an outline of all the decisions that the first one made that work. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And the first one, it also the second one is about like uh, a very traditional style. There's an evil queen. Yeah. Uh, the evil queen has some sort of trick to hold over the head of the the kid. The evil queen is trying to turn all the the, the kids that are on an adventure together against one another. Which yeah, it's, which is why it all clicked for me as like an eight year old. Like this this is still a, the world I like, the characters I like, but everything in this movie makes more sense to me. Yeah, it's like as a kid, I liked uh, the second Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie more than the first because it felt more suited to to like what I wanted. Yeah. Um, and as an adult, it, I still feel the same way. <laughs> as an adult, I'm pretty sure the second movie is like hot garbage, but we'll have to watch it again. We're going to watch um, it because we weren't that hot on the first one. Yeah, we weren't. <laughs> Four <hot>. episodes. <laughs> and the so, whole episode, I'm saying we should watch the second one. It's good. <laughs> So yeah, this is this is definitely a nostalgia audit episode. It's sort of a half one. It fits my nostalgia, or it, it fits my mental image of a child of, of what it is, which is uh, a very sad movie uh, featuring a horse murder. But it's a much more developed movie, and yet it also has a sort of uh, challenging feel to it because the first movie is about um, punish. It's about punishing mental weakness rather than physical weakness. You'd think Atreyu is this powerful character, but Atreyu has to leave his uh, his weapons behind, and he's mostly f- facing um, psychological and mental challenges as he goes. He fights sadness and trickery and such, as opposed to, like, how fast can he fire arrows at people? Oh, you mean Atreyu. Isn't that what I said? I thought you said Bastion. Oh, no, I, I train you. Bastion is, uh, mostly just watches the movie. Uh, occasionally he yells at people and that, like, inspires them. So, but, uh, dude, so let's, let's talk about that component because that seems like a good place to start before we get into some moments in the movie because th- this movie was very different than a lot of other fantasy movies and even stuff I had seen as a kid. It has this idea of this really, like, almost trippy concept. Like, the kid is reading the book in a silent place and the whole time he doesn't realize that like the people in the book can hear and what he does like he doesn't realize that like while he's observing their story they can in a way observe his story except that he doesn't let himself be known in a lot of parts all that entire meta stuff the fact that the reason that atreya went on this quest that ultimately led nowhere that was the quest the quest was just to be fucking exciting so that a, someone like a kid could get hooked enough into the story to like get to the end and get to the point where he gets to to do the thing which is 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 very clever i think and even like movies that we watch now it's a lot of times like why did the person do the thing well we just wanted to bring an audience in and excite them and this this movie is kind of com- and the book itself is commenting on that idea of like well sometimes stories are are not, they don't need to go anywhere they just need to hook an audience and there's another layer on top of that, because when the Empress is telling uh, Atreyu that someone has been following him this whole time, she also says something like, you know, and that human child doesn't realize that other people have been following yeah. his journey the whole time. Oh so it's God. commenting on the viewers, too, which is amazing. Yeah, I, 
it's amazing and something I never got. Like, I, for some reason, that line never stood out to me. Maybe I just watched it so many times. But this was the first time I was watching. I'm like, oh, holy shit. They're, he's, she's referencing me yeah. right now. Like, I, I don't know why I never got that before. Um, and the book even goes deeper into that because there's there's all these, like, other people that have, like, the remnants of other, like, people that have read the book as part of the book. It's And, like, there's all these different layers. Like, the book of the never-ending story exists in – the realm of the so one of the things that's really different is that when uh when the when the childlike empress is like all he needs to do is say my name say my name he's already picked it out he doesn't bastion doesn't say the name and the childlike empress is like shit i guess i gotta go talk to this other guy and this other guy is the guy that's writing the book that we're all reading whoa and and so the childlike empress is like maybe we'll we can get it through his head if everything that he says, he has to record because he's recording everything that's happening. And he says, maybe this kid can get it through his head if I start over from the beginning of the story. And the guy's like, if I start over from the beginning of the story, you guys have to write it down. So this book is just going to start over. He's like, I guess that's what we got to do. So here's what's fucking crazy. So you think that like, okay, well, this version of the never ending story is going to start over where it's going to go to like the stuff we saw we we didn't see beforehand instead it starts at the beginning of our version of the book with Bastion uh entering the bookstore which is how the book begins so he starts telling the story over from the beginning of our book which indicates that that the universe of never ending story starts at the moment we start reading that there is nothing before that wow i think you sort of lost me a little bit um, but is this, is this something that the book really delves into and like hammers home or is it something? Not that, really. Like, no, it's like, it's like that past. scene. And then Bastion is like, you see him reading his own story in the book. And then he's like, oh shit, it is me. So the universe um, only exists when he starts reading it essentially. Oh, exactly. Okay. Of the never ending story. So he's like both spectator and in a way like a God, like he's, but yeah, he's he was already part of the, the book. Yeah. Body. Yeah. So the universe only exists when he's he's spectating it and his role as spectator gets more important in the third act. But I think um, but I will admit that, like, any time that we had to go back to Bastion for the first two thirds of the movie, I was a little annoyed just because not that he's a bad actor. He's annoying or anything like that. I actually quite felt bad for the kid. Uh, But it is kind of annoying the first time you watch it because you're like. But why is this framing device here? Like, why Why do we need to... Why can't we just watch a fantasy movie? Because so many yeah. movies have these framing devices that are completely unnecessary to the story, and we could have just been told the story. And I thought it was that until the end, when it becomes this, like, meta-commentary about how you reading the book is sort of... You're taking part in the book. You're, so you observing uh, this piece of literature is actually actively affecting it. It's almost like a Heisenberg principle. And maybe that's well, why kind of, yeah. Walter White... Yeah. It's a very heady concept for a children's movie. And not to mention that combined with the malaise of it, the sort of <laughs> sadness and the cosmic horror of it. It really doesn't feel like a kid's movie. No. No, like not, movie not at movie. all. I feel like maybe the movie had a decent budget. I feel like it had a good. It had a good budget. I feel like the movie doesn't have that crones. many set pieces, um, and not that many characters. Like I feel like uh, as budgets inflate and stuff, there's definitely room for like a sixty million dollar remake of this. That's like more Pan's Labyrinth esque, where it's like an adult fantasy movie. 
I feel like every scene's a set piece, though. And there, and there are a lot of characters. It's just that some of we see a lot of characters for like one scene. Yeah. Like there's the the kind of gnome people that we see for like one or two scenes, and then there's like the whole group of people in the beginning with like the snail and all that that we see for like the one scene, and the rock biter comes back, and that's it. But there's like it's a fully fleshed out world but we're only getting like tiny little pieces at a time. And there's only three or four characters that are consistent throughout. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and also that gives it really the Pulp Fiction world. So one thing that Roger Ebert said about why, why Pulp Fiction was so appealing is that even though you were seeing these individual scenes of these characters, the world felt so much bigger. And you kind of had a sense that there's there were stories and characters and all these things that everyone in the world knew, but you as an audience member didn't because you were seeing these pieces cut out of the story. And I f- feel the same applies to NeverEnding Story, where – it, does, it feels like there is fully fleshed out concept somewhere in the either of like all these different places and all these different locales and stories behind the, the swamp of sadness and the turtle that's been there since the beginning of the time and just wants time to end. And, you know, it's fleshed out enough to pick your interest and and feel engaged in it and then moves away so quickly that you want to know more. Yeah. And circling back to... Peter was saying earlier about um, the concerns about fashion kind of as a framing device. I I had those concerns initially the first time I watched it. But in that first like 20 minutes or so, as soon as Atreyu is like going on the journey, we see that Bastion is having like mirrored emotional responses to what Atreyu is experiencing. It's not just that he's on the journey with him. It's that that he is sharing in the same emotions mm-hmm. and the same like physical reactions to things like there's a time when Atreyu stops to eat and he's like oh yeah I am really hungry right now and he grabs like his lunch out of his bag and he's like you know in the swamp of sadness like he's experiencing the same emotions and like again and again everywhere they go and that felt that like changed the whole dynamic of the framing device for me because that's like oh this is not it's not just a story about this person going on this journey with him. It's also about empathy and this idea that these people are experiencing the same feelings as they're going. And that is a really adult concept for this kind of movie. And I loved it. He also like is learning less than like he's 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 learning. Atreus kind of like this, this person who is just going doing what he's told. He's kind of a blank slate, which is perfect for a hero character in a children's book. He's just but a badass Bas- kid. Just a badass kid. Bastion's the one who's like learning all the stuff that it, that it, that someone would normally learn in these movies. Like he's learning about bravery and about having the courage to like and taking a leap of faith and all that stuff. So that's a great like dichotomy that they've created. I thought of it like do you guys watch Sensei? I don't. I really need to. I watched like the first season. If I feel like it was a similar kind of thing to the Sensates. You can your 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 strengths feed into the other person's and you know you can you yeah. help each other out by the uh emotions and and abilities that you have and you can like share them 
Yeah, yeah, that's true. They, they that they have a sort of psychic bond, and that they have a they definitely are supposed to be coded as having a brotherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, that in the sequel they make more uh, obvious, like they they like greet each other like old friends, which it's kind of like not well performed. I don't think in the sequel, but because um, they're terrible actors in the sequel. But the book is a similar thing where they meet for the first time, and at first it's joyous, and then. It kind of – it falls apart quickly in the book, which also I think makes sense from the story the movie's telling, which is like he's – he's he is sort of imagining what Atreyu is like and Atreyu has a sense of who Bastion is and then like when you meet someone in the real world, it could be – and actually get to know them, uh, it can be like, oh – you're kind of an asshole. And mm-hmm. you're, oh, wait, you're kind of a selfish, like, kid. And those bullies might have been picking on you for a reason <laughs> and stuff like that. And, you know, it's like if Peter and I, when we first met, like, it could have been like, oh, yeah, you're fun to talk to over Skype. But uh, it was weird that you punched that bouncer and, <laughs> and <laughs> all of your terrible comments about every person in there. Like, you're kind of a piece of garbage. This this uh, Atreyu exists in this rat. Sorry, my dog just ran into the room like an asshole. Um, <laughs> Atreyu <laughs> just exists in this reality wherein um, he exists, he lives a life or whatever, and then he's not just a thing to serve a story purpose. He's an actual living being that was like created through the act of reading the story. It's like kind of, it's kind of creepy in a way because like one of the safe things about watching a movie is that you're like, it's just a story. What that kind of also means is it's just a story means when the movie is over, that person ceases to exist. He only exists within the confines of you watching the movie. Right. And only for the specific purposes of the movie. Well, that's and that's what the book really, uh, really drives home when the 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 keeper of the records of Fantasia goes back to the beginning, and you find out it's the beginning where you dropped in, not because you always imagine when you watch any movie or read any story that like stuff exists before and stuff exists after. Like you're getting a piece of the story that's being presented to you, but like in this imaginary world, stuff happens before and stuff happens after. And what this what this book and kind of in, in the movies positing is nope. <laughs> like there's 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 nothing before page 1 and there's nothing after the last page. Like this is how they exist. Yeah. It puts it puts it puts this responsibility on the viewer, the reader, whoever it is, that like the only the only way that art is meaningful is if you engage with it. That art just existing yes. art just existing on its own as an object has no meaning or relevance or importance. But if you engage with it, if you put in your uh perspective and emotion and all of that, then it becomes alive and it is significant. And well and that's the whole yeah. nothing, right? Like Exactly. Like uh, if if no one's reading this book in its uh, on their own these words on the page are meaningless until they're interpreted by someone. Yeah. Uh, a painting is meaningless until someone sees it. A piece of music is meaningless until someone hears it. So if no one is going to read this book anymore, it might as well be a, a blank nothing because that's how much worth it has without someone's interpretation filtering through it. Yeah, a book without an uh, – it's, it's also speaking to the social nature of art, that art is created – 
um, yes, for a sense of self-expression and a lot of, you know, great authors like I wrote this and I have no intention of publishing it, but I'm glad I got it out of my brain. One of the key purposes of art is like as a social object that you can you pass to somebody without saying what it is, you know, uh, presuming this person does the David Lynch thing and doesn't talk about their movies and in interviews, uh, just pass the object to someone who says, what, what the hell do you think this is? And then the object starts to take shape. Well, it's like, well, there's a give and take that comes with all art. And I like the idea that this movie is like basically like uh, in the book, I guess, is just like a uh, a way for uh, us to talk about stories while also being told a kind of compelling story. <laughs> like, it's yeah, not well, purely a metaphysical exercise, and it doesn't laugh in our face for expecting an actual story either. Well, you know, Peter, you and I very early on in this podcast where we felt more of a need to define, like, our terms as moviegoers would talk about how both – I think we mentioned on one episode, like, both of us don't give much credence to any sort of authorial intent. Like, you, the art goes out there, and then it can be interpreted or – experienced by the by the person experiencing it and that can be it like i don't really care what an author says about their work i'm gonna filter it through my experience and basically in a lot of ways create a new piece of art and that's exactly what this movie is positing is the way the important way that we experience art that there's no author of the never-ending story there there are words on a page but the person reading is creating just as much as the person who wrote it yes yeah uh, it's it's a great point. Um, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I also think it's a pretty compelling narrative as is. It works as a – it's not simply a um, philosophical exercise because then it, it might as well just be a fucking essay with <laughs> with just bullet points on it about like, hey, this is what I think about art and what art is and like – Well, weirdly is- in, the essay, in the essay, they do stop just to let you know a horse died, which is <laughs> <laughs> weird. <laughs> This scene has been referenced a lot. What do you guys actually feel about it? I fucking love this scene. But well, how do you feel driving? about it as a scene? Yeah. Um, I felt like, so as a kid and now, I had kind of had the same experience, which is I felt like it gave stakes. It felt like this was different than most movies I was watching where they introduce his horse buddy who's going to be with him on the companion. And then something happens to him, which is not something you expect. Um, and it speaks to how hard pursuing these kind of journeys are. Like, Atreyu is not going to come out of this unscathed. And it's such a good bookend with um, the giant turtle who's been around since the exist- since the start of the universe, who is like, um, you know, Atrax decides he's fine dying because he's just the, – the swamp of sadness and the despair and the everything about their journey has – brought him to his bro- breaking point and he's lost all hope for the giant turtle who i'm forgetting the name his hope is dying because that's a change from the staying in the same sp- spot and not seeing anything change for all eternity so those are two very big concepts to introduce so quickly in a quote-unquote children's movies and i think that they bookend very well hmm yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, a really great scene to watch as an adult. I do think that, <laughs> there's, a, I do think that yeah. there's a pointless cruelty to it that did not need to be in the movie. Um, as a, a, I think you could have captured those ideas um, and packaged them for children a little bit better. I'm really glad that the horse doesn't talk. That shows some restraint. But yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really well-performed scene. It does make me question who the audience is. Um, 
the movie because it, 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 that's the weird thing is that the movie it kind of fits with the rest of the movie the movie is full of sad dialogue about people not wanting to be alive and people um facing sort losing of like, everything yeah losing becoming everything, nothing facing, yeah, it, it tra- so the, the second act of movies usually has what I like to call a humbling. Um, it's the low point for the character. There's a the nadir, I think, is a story structure technical term. I prefer the term the humbling because it's, it's someone setting off on a journey and then this is the true setback. This is someone having everything stripped away. And this is like telling you that Atreyu's journey is not just going to be him firing arrows at people for <laughs> an hour and a half and then he gets to meet a princess. Um, it fits with the rest of the movie. Um, I really want to talk about my favorite scene in the movie, which is the uh, the rock creature talking about his him sort of uh, you know giving in to the nothing the reason i mention that is because those scenes all sort of gel together and the reason it's dragged out is because those other scenes are also kind of dragged out it's not an outlier scene as much as people make it to be i don't think yeah i love the how it makes emotion like this tangible physical geographical thing like it takes it takes this very nebulous concept that doesn't make certainly doesn't make sense to children still doesn't make very much sense to adults and makes it extremely concrete in this very physical way that even though you know we're just watching this happen you can feel the stuckness and and the inability to escape it. And it's just, it's the most perfect way to visualize the idea of that kind of depression. Yeah. And oh, yeah. it just makes it so, I love the physicality of it. It's, it's, I've never seen anything quite like that. Um, I think it's just visually stunning. And even though it's, it does feel long, but it's not that long because it's, it's so, it is such a fast-paced film. It has to go on to the next thing and the next thing. So it doesn't. It didn't feel to me like it was dwelling in it too much. It just presented it as what it is and then moved on. And it's never revisited or mentioned again. I just I loved it. Yeah. Um, you no, know, that's a per- that's, that's a perfect, perfect way to describe it because it is. I mean, there is. I've heard people that like. Uh, that have depression mention that one of the key things that they've learned with depression is that you might you might not feel good in the moment but you the important thing is to keep moving right like you just need to keep doing the stuff to get through your day sometimes and this you're right that's a great visualization because it is a almost like a quicksand mud swamp and if you stop moving and you give up moving you just start sinking into it yeah exactly yeah Carrie, that's perfect. Yeah, and as someone also who uh, struggled with depression in the past, in particular, it's a um, it's a really apt metaphor. Um, it is really heart wrenching. It feels yes, the sluggishness makes you also sort of explain to people what depression is kind of like. Like you're like, yeah, I mean, I'm trying really hard, but like, I can't. I, I'm trying really hard, but I also can't move forward. Like that—that sort of like uh, give and take. That like you're being sucked in the mud, but like and you like want to get out, so you're pushing forward, but you also can't push forward anymore. Like that—that—that that, that, uh, that wrangling, I think, is like weirdly a better a, a has a better understanding of depression than most people do. I see these fucking awful memes on Facebook that are like, "This is an antidepressant," and it's just a picture of some like someone walking in the woods. I'm like, 
but fuck that it's, nonsense. It's 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 like oh oh you you fucking lucky motherfucker that you have no idea what depression is. Let exactly. me tell you. <laughs> the only kind of similar visualization that I've ever seen like this is the it's an, and it's not a thing for a movie is the concept of spoons that like in both physical and mental illness this idea of like you have this certain amount of spoons and you can use them for any activity that you have to do in a given day and once you've used it then it's gone you don't have it anymore and it's it's frequently it was a concept that originated to talk about i think physical kinds of illness chronic illnesses but it's as relevant to mental illness in the sense of like if you are depressed, you have a certain amount that you're able to do at a given time. And once you've once you've maxed out your capacity, then that's it. That's all that you have for un- until you build up more strength to keep going. So that kind of visualization, I think, is a great way to talk about depression. And this is the only thing similar to that that I can think of that I've seen where it's like, yeah, you can point someone to this and say, this is what that experience is like in a way that might make sense to someone who has not emotionally been in the same place. Now imagine that metaphor with the spoons. If the spoons were saying, don't use me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready to die. Aaron and I have never found a metaphor that we can't make worse. (laughs) Uh, I'm I'm so glad. I was was laughing out loud. Like, not laughing because it was funny, but just... The the extreme way they were going to hammer this point home that I'll never I'll never not think there's a dark humor in like, hey, you know what can make everything worse in like talking about depression and metaphors and sadness visualized is if the thing is like talking also to you. talking. She's <laughs> also talking. <laughs> I wanted to send Peter pictures of the text as I was reading and be like, you have no idea how much worse this horse scene could get. You didn't know how good you had it. Tell your mom. You guys were on cloud nine. You were in a magical wonderland of horse death. You didn't know. Why would that make me feel better? Why Wolfgang <laughs> Peterson protected you. It's, now that you've didn't, told me, you I didn't even worse. thank him. Is the book meant for kids? Or is it adult I mean, fantasy? It's novel? German. Who the fuck knows? Yeah, <laughs> I'm really well, glad that you asked that question because uh, I do. I do genuinely have a question about audience. I think that the movie gels as its own unit, uh, and and like, like I said, I think that the movie uh, in microcosm as the the swamp scene uh, is kind of illustrative. It's not the swamp scene is not the only scene in the movie. We've talked well, about we're, it. A lot, we're gonna talk about a couple other scenes. Super illustrative of yeah. the tone of the film and how it feels and what are the messages of the film and, and that the film is about uh, the trials that are that you go through um, and this like sort of mental strength as opposed to physical strength. Like it's a really great scene, and so I felt like we needed to camp here for a while. Um, yeah. Yeah. I do I do think though that this idea, as, as I as I watch more and more movies again uh, with my kid and, like, through the eyes of a kid, because even stuff that I remember, I almost feel like, is any kid movie made before 1995 meant for kids? <laughs> That's a great question. And I'd love to talk about the effects really quickly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so the effects, I think, mostly look really good. The only time they look bad is anytime any two things are interacting, I think. Um <laughs> 
people yeah like people hit people hitting each other in combat or people handing something from one to another which is mind you making two puppets or two pieces of animation interact is like the hardest thing you can do whether you're using muppets or you're using digital animation just just wait till we talk about the chili down song next week <laughs> dude La- labyrinth have you labyrinth watched labyrinth amazing. yet labyrinth is amazing and then has that one like uh copied over scene where it's like clearly it has that black outline when they would do like the the superimposing <laughs> it's like, really bad and this is this is some of that too which sucks because i love I love the scenes of Atreyu uh, flying, like where he isn't like flying through the air normally, but he's like a like a piece of wind almost, or like a fish gliding through the sea. And it just sucks that those are like <laughs> those those scenes of like this majestic, full giant model they created to make these effects is like, and hey, let's just put a bunch of like I don't know black shit around the edge so you know he's not in the clouds. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing some cool stuff, but not there. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. there's some compositing problems, I think, because, like, the models themselves, I think, look pretty good. Oh, Um, yeah, great. But I I think there's some compositing problems when they're trying to put the models over, you know, hand-drawn backgrounds and such, which is just... It's just a thing in the era you just have to kind of get used to. Weird perspective shifts, um... So like the flying my, scenes or oh my gosh yeah yeah the flying those scenes are, movies are so hard to nail those are rough but those i think are, they're good i good when the, when they're from like the first person perspective when they got that model and are clearly like putting it on a crane and like flying through streets or something i i like those yeah that's cool yeah but when you see really the kid on the dragon then oh, it's yeah. like oh yeah. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> so, but then you look at like Gnome Doctor MD's like hut, and then you get the full body Falcor, and you get all that stuff. Full body like, Falcor. <laughs> is, that, is, that a, is that a videotape you rented? In, in the- That's my favorite Pornhub category. <laughs> um, no, I bet no. it is one. I'm sure it is. The reason I say you that actually is such look a up weird Falcor thing to wearing say. clothes and glasses. So <laughs> I get that that's a weird thing to say, but if you guys had done your research, it's because in the sequel you don't get those images because they, while they use practical effects, they just made like uh, they made a fucking head, so that head just sits there and talks to people. That's true. They didn't make the full scale model, so I get that I hadn't brought that up yet because we haven't gotten there. Maybe that that takes down the creepiness like one tiny bit. <laughs> so I think that there's my theory for why this practical effects can be so um, either warm or terrifying and actually trying to capture one can um, capture the other on accident sometimes. Like sometimes there's a monster in a movie that's very clearly supposed to be scary, but you're like, it's kind of cute. Um, and then the other way, there's something that's supposed to be cute, and you're like, get it away. In this, I think that the 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 um, in terms of uh, puppetry, I think that we recognize the imperfectness of a human uh, manipulator of of a puppet, and the fact that there is uh, someone who has their their hand in there, someone who's pulling strings, someone who's controlling it like a marionette, whatever it takes for the effect. I think we that's your that's your favorite Pornhub category. Someone yes. with their hand. <laughs> yes, um, but I think that we recognize that imperfection and find it depending on the effect of 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 how it's made. Which is my second point. 
we recognize that as charming in some way and human in some way. That's sort of um, the fact that it's not robotic and it's not programmed. Whereas animation sometimes can feel like your brain recognizes that you've seen a particular, um, like if it's Spider-Man punching a thing in the air and it's all CGI, your brain recognizes that punch animation because it's already seen it. But like even the best fighters in the world, there's some slight difference between the punch yeah. that like yeah. your brain recognizes. It's hard to elaborate, but the second point is that also stuff be existing in a reality makes it inherently more charming. I think that those two kind of pay together to make practical effects so charming in these movies. And like I said, creepy can be cute and cute can be creepy if it's not done right. But absolutely. Exactly. So so we still have a whole second movie to talk about. No, <laughs> so we'll maybe not this time. Two hours. So, so let's <laughs> I told you we may break this episode up. I am prepared for it. So let's do this quick before we do a quick shift. What scenes did we not talk about for this movie? Okay, the first thing that immediately comes to mind is less of a scene and more of a setting. I love the creepy attic. Can we talk about the creepy attic? (laughs) (laughs) The world is supposed to be so ground down and so relatable, but like, does anybody's school have an attic like that? No! I don't know. I've never (laughs) heard of one! (laughs) It's so badass. I would have totally hung up there as a kid, like, and ran away from my teachers, especially if I hated being at home. The attic rules. It has skeletons and weird heads. It's it's terrifying, and it's wonderful, and why is that in a school? (laughs) Why? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's sort of a storage room, yes, but like... It is a storage room in a school. Like, why was this shit not gotten rid of? Like, why? Why? I mean, is this- first of all, Germany. <laughs> the schools I went to were obviously like planned to be schools, but I found some creepy rooms. Like, if you ever, I never went to like a Catholic school, but I would like sometimes do CCD classes or something that my parents would make me do at like a Catholic school, and a lot of those like classes are like converted churches that now is just a school because they went and built a new church and those things do have a ton of weird creepy dark rooms Hmm. so i i I do like this idea of like when they used to be like okay well you know we have a we have a wood-burning furnace and this is where we keep our storage stuff and not the sort of like municipal buildings that were like designed to be these like kid-friendly safe environments but yeah, the, that, the, the attic is super cool. I, I It was relatable in a weird way, but I was also like... Um, I always liked the idea that the world had more nooks and crannies that I wanted to explore. Like, I always wanted to find as a kid, like, a, a weird abandoned house or a secret passageway or something. So I always liked movies that had this idea, like, no, the world does have these, like, back alleys and, and nooks that, like, you're just not looking hard enough. You know, like, they yeah, exist. I like that. So the other thing is we haven't talked that much about the that climactic scene when Atreyu finally gets to the Empress. Oh, yeah. And that's a really so so that so there's a lot going on in this scene. But (laughs) but the thing that I always get stuck on is the fact that it's been alluded to throughout. So Bastion lost his mother sometime before this and it eventually is alluded to that whatever name he is going to give the empress is his mother's name yeah the name he gives the empress is moonchild is in the book in the movie 
Uh, <laughs> also in the uh, movie. They, really? Yes. So that's the so that's like also allegedly his mother's name. Okay, so I so where are you getting that he named her Moonchild in the movie? Because he because at the moment that she needs a new name, he like yells it out the window, and that's like okay. the moment, right? And that's okay. how like the world doesn't die. Yes. That was my understanding as well. So I guess here's where the Moonchild stuff got, got a little interesting for me, is that I knew that he named her his mom's name, but I always thought that yell was purposefully incomprehensible. Oh. So I didn't make out Moonchild. Like, I just, it, to me, it sounds like, ah! No, that's and definitely always- what he's saying. Okay, yeah, no, I that that makes complete sense because that is the name that they give they give her in the book. I thought that in the I thought that that was actually a change. I th- I thought that okay, well, that's weird. In the book, it's Moonchild. In the book, it has no reference to the fact that's his mom's name. It's just oh. the name. Oh. So I thought you know the movie specifically, child like Empress says you've you know you name me after your mom or something like that. And I thought that the the name that he yells was purposely incomprehensible, and I liked that. I liked that they're like, we don't need to tell you what this name is, just that he yells it, and and we're going to tell you where he gets it. So uh, that's 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 interesting that you were able to to make it out because this time again I didn't make it out, and I thought that was on purpose, but apparently. They, but apparently they went a much stranger route, which is to keep Moonchild, but make it his mom's name. And I have so many questions about this. Man. Because, like, I mean, You can't even she... blame 70s. You can't blame Child of the 70s, because she... <laughs> it's 1979, the book was written. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's, she's, like, she's... straight. She's child of World War Two, maybe one. <laughs> so, I don't know where Moonchild came from. <laughs> I but it's just such a good detail that like the yeah. dad the dad is this like weird conservative business dude and the mom is main is named Moonchild. How did these parents it's, meet? I need to see that. Yeah, what? maybe after the mom died, the dad became super conservative to protect himself because he saw uh, their freewheeling hippie lifestyle as the reason that she died. That is the only logical explanation. Yeah, it really is because it because I, I, I of all of the different directions that this story can go, and I kept thinking back to like, so how did these parents end up meeting in the first place? Because they seem the based on the limited inf- information I have about both of them, they seem like two people who would never have had a child together. And I have so <laughs> many questions about all of this. Here's the other weird thing. So I'm looking at the Wikipedia. Do you know who Bastian's grandfather is? No. Frank Zappa. (laughs) (laughs) On on his mom's side. So it's all coming together, I think. This this Frank Zappa's eternal. He is he's the he's our version of the childlike empress. Mind blown. (laughs) This 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 answers so much. So let's I wanna get into a little bit of let's get in the sequel. Do we have any more thing about never ending story the first one before? I mean, we're obviously gonna do a a full wrap up here at the end. Anything else we need to call out specifically? Yeah, I got one more thing. Um, okay. I want to discuss uh, the scene wherein uh, the rock monster uh, talks about how his hands rock monster, be- rock monster. All of my rocks are empty. <laughs> 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 
not M- yeah, not empty. That would be something. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's a it's a pretty good scene. I saw a gif of it recently on uh, on Twitter. So it is apparently similar to the horse scene in that it made an impact on people. Mm-hmm. It's this remarkably sad scene that in the in the style of the movie we don't really get a uh, follow up to because the uh, world explodes. the The rock scene is so great because it's um, he's he's looking at his hands and he's like remarking how like he used to have like a sense of purpose and like used to feel like he had a place in this world, but as uh, you know, people are abandoning the story and Fantasia is coming apart. He also personally is like, not only is my world coming apart, like, I don't know what purpose I have and what's left. Like, why don't I also just, it's like this swamp of sadness is like expanded all throughout the land in a way like the nothing is, is not, this swamp of sadness is not an isolated metaphor. This nothingness, this like nihilistic malaise has spread everywhere. I I love that scene so much. It was like, it still got me at like a little choked up watching it this time because it is just so I'm going to use this I'm going to use this term and I understand that it's not appropriate but human <laughs> like like it is it is a human scene of someone just looking at themselves laid bare and wondering what meaning in their life is and the fact that it's done with like a amazing puppet or animatronic or special effect um, and, and a rock monster is is all the more impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie, did, that, did you find that scene touching or was it just sort of like all part of part of the mix? It's it, it didn't stand out to me in the same way that it did to both of you. But it yeah, it, it, it comes at a moment when everything is kind of falling apart. And I think in a broader sense, that was affecting me. I, I wish that we had had a little bit more time with. The, with the rock biter because if he's gonna if if he was gonna come back again i wanted to i wanted to know him a little bit more and follow him as we were following other people but oh the, man do i have great news about the sequel oh yeah <laughs> that yeah, just be careful what you wish for but <laughs> um but just the idea of like all of his friends are already gone and he's still pure and doesn't know what's going to come next and doesn't know how much longer he has. It's like, it's very scary. Yeah. It's like a, no, it's like a World War II movie or something, a war drama where like somebody has lost their whole family and they're just kind of wandering around. They're just like, well, what do I do? I don't have a house and I don't have a family anymore. Two weeks ago, I had a house and a family. Like, what do I do? I don't have a job that burned down also. Like what, what am I supposed to do? I guess I'll just wander around and look at rubble for a while. Like, it, it, it felt like the ravages of war almost. Yeah, yeah. it's also like a like a jewel song, like a, my hands are rock. I know, but they're <laughs> empty now. How many song parodies are we capped at for an episode? Because I think I we think, did it. I think thirty seven. <laughs> <laughs> look, um, look at the bylaws. So I, I think I think the movie fits together so nicely that uh, all these little character moments are. Um, and I agree with you, Carrie. I would have loved more with the rock monster in the first movie, but I there's so many great little character moments, and one of them is that. 
uh, is the wolf moment. Um, yes. He confronts this big scary beast who's like this sort of personification of evil. And you find out that he, the nothing in him don't have a deal or anything. No. This isn't like a Sauron situation where like Sauron's just a big scary eye. How can it even talk to people? And it's like, well, I guess Sauron worked with everybody. Um, he cut a deal. In this, it's like, it, he's like, oh, I'm just helping the chaos. Like, I love the chaos. I love the death and the nothingness. Like, I'm just helping along. Like, it hasn't promised me anything. But, you know, the world's ending anyways. Why not get a, get on board? Which is such a great metaphor for, especially, like, I, I don't want to get, I don't want to get into the Trump stuff. But, like, it does get into people that I saw during the 2016 election that said, like, Let's vote for Trump. Like, who gives a shit? Maybe, like, he'll tear down the whole system and we can rebuild from that. I'm like, no, 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 you don't get it. Yeah, anarchy <laughs> Anarchy is better than the system we already have, so let's just destroy it and start over. Yeah. Look, I don't think it's controversial to say that Gmork is probably a Trump supporter. <laughs> <laughs> that he seems clear. A, a ravenous wolf who tries to oh, eat Oh, man. Yeah, Gmork cut a video for the RNC. You guys did, <laughs> get that? Um, so we're going to transition. We're going to come back to NeverEnding Story for final thoughts. Here's So I texted Carrie and Peter last week and said, Hey, uh, I know we're watching a movie for the show. Can you guys watch, like, another movie for the show? <laughs> um, and it was because, as I was watching the first NeverEnding Story, I kept remembering how I thought the second one was the better version of the two stories. But I really you thought... You were an idiot. It, I, was def- I mean, I was a kid. <laughs> I definitely thought that the sequel for my entire life was, a, a, like, a true cash-in 80s and 90s sequel. Like, this was successful... Six years later, they throw together another one. As I mentioned, I had no idea that the first movie only covered half of the book and that this sequel was like – it doesn't follow the story but took but took a ton of elements from it. So I ended up watching it again right after the first one and then was like kind of obsessed with reading this book because I was kind of saying to carry uh, on the break – it's like finding out anything that, like, something that you watched over and over and over as a kid had, like, a whole second part that you weren't aware of. That's why I wanted to get the book. Like, you had rented at one of those VHSs with two tapes, and you never realized that your video store didn't have the second tape. And then all of a sudden, like, 30 years later, you're like, what? I never saw part two? So I was I was also – I read the book very quickly because I was excited to find out what happens – to to this story here's let me let me tell you very quickly how the second half of the book goes and then i'll do a very very quick plot recap of the how the movie goes and then we can talk about the movie so the second half of the book is the second that uh bastion says the childlike empress's name she disappears and he is in this like empty world and he has the oron and he can start kind of creating a new And that's kind of the whole purpose of the book. The whole never-ending story concept in the book is not that the story goes on forever, that it is like a Russian nesting doll. The never-ending story exists in the book, the never-ending story, which exists in the real world, which then exists in our world. Like, it is just a constant, like, flow that, like, recreates and there's – and – as new people read it and he actually eventually goes to this town where like everyone who's ever read the book who got so caught up in it that they lost themselves like lives in Fantasia or Fantastica in the book. 
So the, the the second half of the book is that Bastion comes and he is this kind of like slovenly overweight kid who's terrible at everything. He's kind of portrayed as like not like a kid. Uh, he's definitely getting picked on in the book, but he is not like a he's like he is just kind of a shitty kid is the way they portray him. So he comes to Fantasia. He, you know, saves the world. He creates it anew and starts creating things differently, but with all of his friends there eventually. But as he is gets the ore and is like wishing and he can't just make a wish, but it's like wishes that are truly in him. He loses a piece of himself. So he wants to be uh, the best looking person in the world. And it is a movie about losing yourself in a very negative way. So he starts losing his memories, but it's portrayed as in this amazing way where, for example, he wishes himself to be more attractive. And then at some point he never recognizes what it used to look like. So when Atreyu, for example, mentions, um, hey, you look different than you used to when in that trial I saw you in the mirror. He's like, what are you talking about? I've always looked like this. And it's this idea of like completely losing who you are as a person by – wanting more and more and getting like an ounce of power and an ounce of responsibility and then using it to destroy everything that you love. And it's very powerful and it really changed the direction of the story, not just because you have a protagonist view switch, but it kind of gets into what it means to have like a responsibility as a creator of anything. And and then, of course, it also has this great thing where you're going through all these these new worlds that have been that are still Fantasia, but have been touched by um, the creator. And the childlike empress goes away forever. They even say you can never meet her again because to meet her again would be you'd ha- you'd only be able to meet her in a new story because now you are essentially the person. And the childlike empress of the book is like this basically omnipotent being who doesn't judge good or bad but just protects everything in its creation uh, so that it always exists. So that's the story. Um, There is a little bit of a side plot with this this witch and this like all-seeing tower who Bastion falls under the influence of and turns against Atreyu. And there's like this huge b- bloody battle where he almost kills Atreyu and decides that like he he should be the emperor because the empress has left him and won't see him. And it really is this like – after this big triumph of the first half of this book, taking this little bit of triumph and turning it dark and against itself and then having to refine yourself as you lose everything about yourself. Very good. Sequel movie. <laughs> take some of that. Um, and take some like locations and stuff. It has Bastion go to Fantasia, which again, me as a kid was like, yeah, fuck yeah. Uh, this is my this is my person I'm relating to in the movie because he's the real world kid. Now he gets to go to Fantasia. And on top of that, he's got a magic wish amulet. All that is kind of in the book. Uh, he goes back. He goes to the Silver City. He Someone immediately is like, hey, by the way, your wishes, uh, use them. He's like, I don't know if I should use wishes. <laughs> Sounds a little crazy. And then pretty soon he's just, like, wishing for shit like crazy. Like, there's nothing that's more infuriating in this movie than when he just, like, wishes for a step at a time. We can get into that. <laughs> um, but he – so he meets this this late – he meets Atreyu. He meets Falcor. Uh, and what's happening is every time he wishes, li- a, a literal physical memory like it's an object goes into this – I don't know. Like, those things you put pennies in at airports that circle around and go to charity – 
And that's a memory that she, that Zaid the witch holds on to. And as soon as he gets all the memories, she, she controls the emptiness. And once he's an empty vessel, he can control her and rule Fantasia with the the powerful medallion. Um, so it's very that concept is very literalized. Meanwhile, his dad goes looking for him, uh, finds the book. And starts reading it, and uh, much like Bastion in the first one, the dad reading the book is like he's reading about what's happening to Bastion losing his memories. Um, but the memory part is really frustrating, and I do want to mention that as, as a as a as in compared to the book because it is just like someone will go like, you know about your mom, right? And he's like, who's my mother? Yeah. The the losing your memories doesn't change who he is, and the whole point of the book is that your memories are what make up you. So it's not just like you forget certain things that happened in the past, but your entire outlook on the world and your personality and everything else changes. And obviously they, they had trouble portraying that in the movie when it's Jonathan Brandis and he's just saying, like, I guess I forgot that part. That's basically it. They defeat the witch and that's the end of the movie. He uh, overcomes his fear to jump into a lake or a waterfall. He goes back home and him and his dad reunite. So it's. It it does take these little elements, so I almost got this little picture into the world that the second half of the book was creating. But it does it with a with uh, a terrible version of George Miller, the director named George Miller, uh, George Miller's uh, evil twin, George the evil T. Miller, twin. also yes. from Australia. Yeah, they might be. I mean, I don't know how uh, original Australians are when they name their kids, but maybe they are twins. I don't know. <laughs> Could be. George and George. And then the a lot of the big focuses of the movie where the reason he's back in Fantasia is that he reads the book again and now it's this other thing and the dad reading the story is completely not present in the book version. Uh, but it is just this like kind of poorly put together long after the first one with an entirely different creative team and it it doesn't know how to tell the story of the book, um, which is not surprising because I think that story would be very hard to tell in movie form instead takes a couple pieces and crafts this very easy to understand narrative for children while still keeping the bizarre fantastical elements that children liked so that was me talking a lot so yeah never ending story two i inflicted some pain on you and i'll also preface this by saying that i went and look we have a lot of like mutual acquaintances in a film group that we're all in and I, I follow a lot of them on Letterboxd, and, uh, which is a movie tracking site. So sometimes when I watch a movie, I go and see how what, it, what do some of these people think of it, how many have logged it, how many have seen it. Never-ending story, it's like half of everyone I follow on Letterboxd has seen it. It's six people for Never-ending story, too. So my experience <laughs> yep. of seeing this movie and falling in love with it uh, is apparently – I guess sometimes you assume things are a little more universal than they are. I don't think it was universal, but I thought it was similar and people had seen this. Uh, no. I did the same thing you did. I immediately checked Letterboxd to see who else had logged it, and it's like, nobody. And half the people that had logged it didn't even give it a rating. Yeah. Yeah, it's like six people have seen it, and there's like two re- ratings. And depending on when you checked mine, my rating went down considerably. <laughs> <laughs> it's always sad when you see the uh, the little uh, like recycle-looking symbol on Letterboxd to show you it was a second viewing, and it did not survive. Um, no. 
no this was a massacre for me yeah this movie this movie also having no two stars feels like even your nostalgia is clinging on by fingertips (laughs) like so yeah this movie's terrible um so yeah good night everyone next week is labyrinth um we're gonna have morgan runas on again um so yeah the, the movie did nothing for me uh it actually just like i said earlier i think it um the only thing it did for me is it uh created an outline of all the great decisions that the first movie made design wise i put it in this upper echelon of like the ugliest movies i've ever seen (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a scene with the witch and her in her chamber wearing this sort of um rhombozoid hat i don't even know what the shape is it's uh this weird like conical on two sides hat uh she makes rita repulsa look like put together and these like triangular earrings and like the the she looks like she she lives like in a like a 70s like sex house like i don't know exactly like what what they were going for because it's just like she has like a glass table that looks like somebody just wiped cocaine off of um it's like these red curtains and shit like it is one of the worst designed movies i've ever seen but here's what's crazy about the design so reading about this movie so the first one fucking crab dudes oh the fucking crab giants so the first one though used a lot of uh full scale models and then like built on sets this movie to save money used a lot of like (laughs) close-up full-scale models and matte paintings and there's something about that that is still kind of charming to me because they they still had to it's 1990 so they still had to use practical effects like five years later this is an even uglier movie peter (laughs) um so like their their way of like cost cutting is still using amazing special effects that all of us like you know get so excited about if we hear a movie's using like matte paintings and full-scale models yeah (laughs) and that was like their now this is a cheap piece of shit no one's gonna see this six years later just make some matte paintings and some full-scale models yeah uh like there is at least like a handmade charm to it but it's the sort of handmade charm that's in the ron howard the grinch movie where yeah which, mind you, the Ron Howard the Grinch movie at least has, like, a Takes place in Fantasia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> at least it has a consistency to its ugliness. Like, you always know... Your eyes can just, like, wash over that movie and ignore it. And this, like, they'll just, like, flash to an inner chamber of the of the witch's house or, like, show you a new monster you've never seen before. And, like, you get, like, the head cock of repulsion. Yes, the movie could have could have been uglier, I guess, but it's definitely in the upper echelons. It takes a lot of the charm of the first movie and just like tosses it out. What is the fucking Birdo? Nimbly, uh, flappy, flappy, nimbly, bird? nimbly. Nimbly's nimbly great. Nimbly's because- nimbly is terrifying. He's so terrifying. creepy. Nimbly's great because the entire even even in this one has a lot of like weird, hard to place creatures, like the guy who has like different expressions in like a box head that rotates or when he goes into that weird temple and everyone looks different like it still kind of matches with that like quasi familiar with a twist fantasia characters from the first one and then they've introduced a character that's just uh it's a it's a bird it's a man a bird costume 
and he's he's like the second lead or something. It's it's a bizarre choice. <laughs> well, this is how Bastion imagined them. Um, and uh, poor Jonathan Brandis must have a lot going on in his head to imagine such Oof. a terrifying creature alongside those magic, those giant like uh, not rock lobsters, um, giant lobster giants. <laughs> Did I say the word giant yet? I think they're supposed to be giants. They're definitely oh, they're giants. Big. They're big yeah. boys that also have some sort of uh, dental equipment attached to their lobster claws. It's a sequel to Dead Ringers. <laughs> Spiritual sequel, but a sequel. Uh, yeah, so so my, the, the weirdest thing about this movie is that it is much more conventional. It feels very much more like a run-of-the-mill fantasy movie for kids from the 80s, even though it's 1990. Uh, the kid gets to enter the story immediately. He's just entering a fantasy land. Uh, the kid makes a bunch of friends immediately that get to all come along in his adventure, mostly. And you see everyone you cared about in a five-minute time span. It's Atreo, it's Falcor, rock creature. This That's like bing, no bang, boom. No. Yeah, it's like, don't worry, this is a sequel, this is a sequel. After telling you that everything's going to be different in this movie, in this book, it's like, well, like, yeah, four out of five people are still there. It, so it's, in a weird way, a more conventional kids movie. Uh, also, the role of the father, John Wesley Ship, he's a, a much more traditional, conven- like, conventional role for this kind of movie. Um, he's a dad, he's looking for a son who's lost in this fantasy world, he's really worried about him, whereas in the first movie, the dad is completely gone. Yeah. It also does that really annoying kid movie sequel thing, and like, I guess, nor- like, all sequel thing, where it just resets, you know? Because there was a catharsis with his mom in the first one when he names this new life after the memory of his mom. Which I guess can- canonically in all movies is in the movies is Moonchild, <laughs> um, and but in this one he's like clearly a few years older and is still like even more so than the first movie. It feels like his mom has just died yesterday, and I so th- like resetting him back to that same place of like uh, you know he's wearing a sweater his mom knit, uh, which is his dad's like it's a little ragged. It's got like giant holes like if he wasn't wearing an undershirt it would just be like nipple city here's my belly button here's my back like there are, there's nothing keeping this sweater together this is a reasonable request by his dad but it, it does it does that it is like they're doing that because they want to add more import for the memories of his mom that they're losing but it does feel like well what what happened at the end of that first movie because now he's four years later and it's like his mom just died yesterday and it, it just feels off. Not that like you can't still feel grief four years later or even more grief than you did four years before, but it just the whole thing feels well, off. Well, they act like he never learned anything after the first one. Yeah. Like exactly. the it, it towards toward, there's that scene at the beginning with the sweater in the kitchen. And then I think right after that is when he's at. It's either right before or right after that is when he's at the swim practice and he's afraid to jump off the diving board. And I, watching this for the first time, I was convinced, like, okay, well, in the first movie, he learned all of these things about, you know, strength and courage and, you know, adventure and all that. And you see him have this image of this waterfall in Fantasia. And I'm like, oh, great. So he's channeling Fantasia in order to, like, do the thing. And then he doesn't. 
And that totally threw me. Because I was like, oh, the reason they're putting this in here is to show that what he learned from Fantasia is going to be like carried with him and he's going to, you know, be this different person, this stronger person because of it. And none of that happens. That's such a fascinating read because you're right. Like, I never saw it that way, but I could totally see how he could be like, okay, I've tamed these majestic waterfalls. I can jump off this high dive as opposed to him uh, just visualizing the high dive as this crazy waterfall, which, spoiler, becomes literalized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I I was I was completely convinced, like, oh, he's remembering something from Fantasia, and that's, like, helping him through this. But that is not where they went at all, and that was a bummer. Well, the, and the whole movie really is about, like, dumbing down the first one, because there's no such thing as, like, the emptiness in the book. So it's like a repeat of the nothing with, now it's the emptiness. But instead of, like, this weird nebulous concept, it's just this witch doing it. It's it's taking everything and explaining stuff over and over and over. It has no no trust in the audience. There is there's a point in this movie where Bastion's memories are leaving him. It is extremely clear what is happening with his memories. <laughs> then the witch grabs a memory and looks into it and remembers it. And like views the memories through the these balls that are created every time he loses a memory. Right? It is so God damn clear what is happening. The camera pans out and there's Nimbly <laughs> and Nimbly basically turns to the camera and goes, that was a memory that Bastion has lost. <laughs> and the scene ends. It's so terrible. And she's supposed to be this like scary villain, but I don't know how you can make like a, uh, a personified villain that is scarier than the concept of the nothing. Like, I, yeah, I no, why are man. they even trying? That's on the same thing that I'm talking about where they they went for a more conventional movie with a conventional villain that, like, tries to, like, ruin their friendship as opposed to, like, this vague cosmic thing that you can never beat. It's not something that you can go and, you know... Uh, stab the heart of the nothing like there's <laughs> it's just this force that's sweeping in like i i don't it, it went from this really like heady thoughtful uh movie to this um wait uh so it's just a witch we just got a witch doesn't just wants to control and that's what's so genius about the book because the villain of the second half of the novel is bastion like he gets power and then destroys everything he loves mm -hmm. wow okay yeah, I, I I really like that idea, personally. Um, I really like the idea of the movie inverting what our expectations are for its second act, but also there's a thing going on where the second movie is a reboot, so it doesn't... It, I, <laughs> just treating it as a reboot, I don't have the ability to just go like, oh, this is a continuation of what's going on because they changed the actor. They changed... Almost all the actors, all the voices, um, and they basically tell us it's a reboot. So, like, it loses power to have us have this character and then just have him act like a shit. And at the end of the movie, he dies off a diving board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, it is. Uh, I, I don't have that much to so much heart for this movie to talk about it too deeply because it is it is such a 
deeply broken movie that also <laughs> like leads into it leans into boring convention and when it it realizes that it's broken mm-hmm. like it's like oh we don't really have anything to do with the second act so let's just have more occurrences that are kind of crowd pleasing and then they don't work and then it's just very awkward um the the movie has a sense of like like all right well we gotta we gotta make a movie and like well did you did you have to make a movie that is very desperate and feels very wrong-headed to me and so yeah i was weirdly after enjoying the first one so much i was weirdly offended by this one in a way that sequels rarely do yeah yeah i think that's fair that's totally fair (laughs) (laughs) um it is one of the clunkiest movies we've ever watched um but yeah do you guys have any final thoughts on on this movie i i I had a couple other things. Um, the it makes sense hearing now Aaron describe the book, but I was very upset and frustrated seeing the conflict between Bashan and Treyu, and I didn't, in the context of the film itself, make sense to me because hearing about hearing about the book and hearing about this idea of like, oh, okay, you've come to interact with this this being that you've imagined a version of and now you're seeing it in reality and then there's a conflict between the two that makes so much sense Yeah, and you're competing yeah, with them that makes yep. so much sense but in the context of the movie it just feels like <laughs> here are these two people who have been friends all this time and now they're fighting a lot and in thinking about it with the first with the original film that felt so disappointing because the emotional connection between the two of them was the biggest thing that hooked me into the original film that yeah and they never met they never shared right. a scene and that's that connection in the first film is so powerful that it does not exist at all in the sequel <laughs> it it is there for like a second when they first interact and then almost immediately dissipates into this conflict between the two of them having these vastly different ideas about how to go about things. It's like, well, where you, you had this connection and where did it go? I don't understand. I, I, I understand now what they were going for, but in none of it translates. Yeah, it definitely is. It's the, um, I should create a quiz that's like, Hey, this part of this never ending story two movie. Do you think this is in the book <laughs> or not in the yeah. book? Because because there's so much stuff that's like, oh, invisible belt. In the book, not in the book. Uh, um In the in the I book? Just, I Yes. Is, uh and it's It yes, is in the it's, book. It's in yeah. the book. But it's so funny, like if if I had done a whole quiz and been like that, you'd probably be like, Invisible Belt that hears their plan is not in the book. That seems like a shitty movie contrivance contrivance. And then if I said like, oh, and then the the Movies about how if you read a story a second time, it's different. You'd be like, oh, that's totally in the book. Nope. Because that idea is brilliant. I love that. That's the best thing that the movie does. Yep. But I love the idea of it being a reshuffling, not so much like the the Crystal City with the ships and shit. Like, that's all new. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's that's a weird thing. Like, you don't read a book a second time and like be like, this never happened the first time. Unless you were reading it drunk or something. Like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, if you drink enough, everything's new to you all the time. <laughs> yeah, you're always filled with a sense of wonder and discovery. Yeah. <laughs> you're the Lewis and Clark of your own apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, what else do you have on Never Ending Story 2 before we do our kind of final final wrap up? Um, 
so was the bookstore ever real? Because here's what happens in this movie is in the first movie, the bookstore is definitely real because he goes to it. He gets the book. Second movie, same thing happens. Then the dad goes to the bookstore to try to find him. Then the bookstore never existed. So where did this book come from? Where did the bookstore go? There's never any conclusion about that. Cotton Eye Joe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when that plays back, it'll sound really good. <laughs> I rhymed it. <laughs> I, underst- uh, I understand, yes. But, but, um, but, but what, what's happening there? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So in, in the book, uh, the bookstore is real. Uh, he, he makes up with his dad. And because he's gone for an entire day, it's kind of the it's the Peter Pan Wizard of Oz thing where he tells his dad everything that happened and his dad sits down and believes him, even though he just wakes up in the attic in the morning mm-hmm. and his dad cries with him, believes him, and they like decide they're going to change. And um, Bastion goes to return the book, which his dad is like, oh, my shitty kid is owning up to what he did and is, and is, and is uh, returning the book. He really has changed. Whether it was real or not doesn't matter because it's had a real effect on him. And his dad is extremely supportive and believes him. He goes back and brings the book back to the shop guy. And it, you find out in their conversation, the shop guy is one of those people who read a version of the NeverEnding Story and renamed the child like Emptress and got to do his own story and uh, had his own like wish fulfillment. And he went on his own creation story and they bond over that and they say you know they're going to talk about this more the thing that does disappear is the book never ending story like that book disappears and will be renamed and will be someone else's adventure that sounds really wonderful and sounds like a thing that should have been in this film especially at, especially as bastion uh does not use his power that well so yeah yeah unlike the movie it's like um, the, but yeah it uh, was I've- a ghost book I don't know. <laughs> the, sh- the shop's gone. Uh, like, oh, the book was dead the whole the time. Yeah. yeah. But it's, I, I feel like having this disappearing bookstore just adds this level of fantasy in the real world that doesn't need to be. Because the fantasy of Fantasia is this perfectly contained thing that works in a metaphoric sense. Even if it's sloppily handled in the second movie, it has some logic to it. Whereas having this disappearing bookstore, it I, I don't know why this is irritating me so much, but it, it added this level of extra fantasy and confusion that I, I don't understand why they did it. Whereas the if it was just the book disappearing, then that would actually make sense because, okay, so it is going on to the next person and it's going to be called something else. Unlike the first movie where it ends... Pretty grounded in the well. Okay, that is true, but but even that, it was like okay, I can see him. I can see yeah. the fantasy of him thinking, okay, this is how I get back at the bullies. Whereas the dad, who granted has been yeah, reading no, it, but I, is still not in the. He's still yeah. It's I don't know. No, I agree with you hundred yeah. percent. You know what movie doesn't need a need a sixth sense twist <laughs> at the end? Fucking never ending story exactly. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so i think i think we can kind of wrap up there um peter what are your final thoughts on this entire uh watching two movies for the first time 
and uh, then hearing me describe parts of a book. Um. So <laughs> there's fair. a scene in the movie where there's a scene in the movie where uh, Bastion is like talking about this like dragon. He goes, "I'll call him Smurg." Uh, with Neverending Story too. Uh, what I would say after I made the movie, I'd say I call it shit. <laughs> <laughs> is that a joke? <laughs> uh, there is a Those scene where he says, "Final thoughts," Smurg, and you're like, "Why did you name?" <laughs> That's my final thought. Because um, the movie, the movie is is this weird thing where like they throw in moments where they're supposed to be charming like that, and they just don't work. Um, and they constantly try and give you quick little um, instant gratifications to keep kids happy, which worked on you probably would have worked on me as a kid if I'd gotten to the sequel. Um, like how Smurg gets created and then Smurg gets zapped right after we get um, uh, the luck dragon back. And it, that is the movie, I think, in a, in a microcosm. It's just like these small moments with no dramatic weight just happening that are trying to please you, but they're not working. Um, but the first movie is this really uh, compelling sad story about what stories are and what makes stories real and what doesn't make stories real and uh, I think it's like not 100% successful. I think the super happy ending kind of undercuts some of that but um, I think the first movie is like mostly successful and it comes from a long line of stories that I like which is about kids escaping from a, the, a troubled life and the indignities that come with that into a fantasy world like Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and uh, Alice in Wonderland and Wizard of Oz and Pan's Labyrinth and I think it fits right in that canon. Love the first film a lot. Um, it, it held up on a second watch. Um, I think that it is a very emotionally compelling story. I like what it says about art. I like what it says about depression. Um, there's a lot there that I think works as an adult viewer. And I'm glad that I, I'm a little bit glad that I didn't experience it growing up because having this like intentionally adult outlook on it, I appreciate having that with this film. And the reason why I dislike the second one as much as I do is because I feel like it takes everything that I love about the first movie and just takes all of the heart out of it. That all of the pieces are still there and there is this void of soul to it that felt very sad. And I, in the context of hearing about how the structure of the book goes, I understand the pieces of it more, but I don't understand the execution of it at all. <laughs> I don't think anyone does. That's a fair, <laughs> that's a fair assessment. Uh, so for my final thoughts, I don't think I need to say more about the movies or the book because I went down a pretty deep rabbit hole. So if you can't sense my uh, overflowing love of the first movie, especially and the book, a newfound love. I just I just loved so much and, and watching the second one was such a fun little weird artifact of oh this is not made up bullshit for a sequel this is part of a book that was the whole story so it was it was like interesting for me in kind of a historical or an archaeological way uh, in some respect what I will say is that one of the one of the side benefits that about this podcast in general is that I sometimes get to watch a movie that I loved as a child or as a high schooler or just have loved my entire life 
and watch it again with kind of fresh eyes with a with a critical look because obviously we're taking notes and we're we're looking at things to talk about as opposed to just uh, a more passive experience like a lot of movie watching is where I'm actively engaging in it in a way that I didn't before I started doing this podcast or before probably people that like write about films because now I need to take what I'm seeing and project it in a different way. And one of the side benefits of doing this podcast uh, that I love doing in general is sometimes I get to watch a movie that I love and then talk about it with people that I love talking to about movies. And the, this is by this has now crossed our threshold for longest like pre-edited podcast, and we didn't even do an opening segment. And I I'll kind of apologize a little if I uh, talked a lot or dominate the conversation, but. This was a recording I was looking forward to. This was like reading the book was such an exciting uh, experience for me. Like this is such a great little like personally, which I know is not a good summation for the listeners out there. But personally, this is was such a satisfying experience to. Oh, I just fucking watched Never Ending Story again. And now I get to talk about it with two people I love talking about movies with. This is amazing. So this was great. Watching, rewatching these movies was great. Reading the book for the first time was great. And I'm hoping that I hope our podcast does at its best or any podcast does at its best is as you listen, you get to have that same experience where maybe you're not actually in the conversation, but you get to have that wonderful experience that movie watching can do, which is bring out that feeling of passionate people talking about stuff. So, this was great. Uh, Carrie, I'm so happy that you joined us for this. Um, and I'm so happy that you guys uh, l- let me just talk about some stuff that I I very much wanted to talk about, both new and old for me. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it's beautiful. This is uh, this is this is really a great time. I probably would have never revisited this movie because I only knew it about uh, uh, horse murder. And uh, I probably would have never visited this movie at all if, uh, if, if it wasn't for the show. So thank you guys so much for uh, having this very long conversation. I know, Carrie, it's very late for you in particular. Uh, it's, it's worth it. I enjoyed this so, so much. Awesome. Um, I think we're just testing Carrie. Carrie's been so friendly about being on the show. I think we're just testing the limits of that patient. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe 4 a.m. next time. Um, um, so Carrie, what uh, thank you again for joining us. What do you what do you have to promote? Uh I have a Vimeo channel that I shared last time and I will share the link again in the show notes and uh yeah, you can see my work there. Um I have so a show that I worked on a couple of years ago is finally going to be on TV, I think in the next couple of months, but I don't have an air date yet. So whenever it is officially officially announced i will share it with you guys and hopefully it can be disseminated but yeah oh that's coming that's coming eventually 100 percent. that's so exciting yeah can you tell us can you tell us anything about the tv series yeah so i uh i in 2016 i worked on a series called death row stories um which is a documentary series about various cases in def- in uh, capital punishment the uh it's primarily showing the problems that exist in capital punishment cases um so i worked on i worked as uh, a researcher on two different episodes of that show following two different stories one about someone who was exonerated and one about someone who is still on death row and the issues of 
why they were in the situations that they were and and uh how they got resolved or didn't get resolved and it's a really cool series uh it's had two seasons already this will be the third season i'm really excited uh what what channel it was going to be it it, the first two seasons were cnn i believe the third season is uh hln okay so more more coming about that that is exciting stuff yeah that is so exciting i can't wait to watch that thank you uh, uh yeah and uh, Aaron, peter we, we have we, for the rest of the month yeah we got a couple we got a couple more <laughs> i don't know couple. why my voice went up we got we got we got a few movies up our pockets uh those movies <laughs> you oh know how you keep movies in your pockets oh you know what it's the only person it's early for peter is you <laughs> <laughs> listen mr west coast like yes it is the latest for carrie she wins that i'm right behind (laughs) Um, but uh no we're doing labyrinth with surprise guest morgan brunis yay uh, which we're very excited about uh i have now watched that movie uh four times because it is my daughter's new favorite movie and then we're finishing the month with uh the legend not the legend but uh legend colon slash the legend director's cut so the director's cut of the movie the ridley scott movie uh legend i'm gonna try to watch both uh again uh and we're doing that with beth powder so i'm very excited to wrap up the month with that and then we'll be talking more about um february march april may because peter and i did some work today to finalize our schedule yeah (laughs) (laughs) So we have a um, we have a long planned schedule. I'm very excited about uh, a lot of guests booked. So uh, this has been already such a fun month, and I'm glad we still have two whole movies left to cover, Peter. Um, so this has been amazing. Uh, it's been very long, but this has been amazing. Uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank, this was great. Thank, thank you guys, and uh, much like. Much like the book promised and the movie promised. Don't worry, this episode's not ending. I'm going to loop it for as long as SoundCloud allows us to, to create giant files. And just like the movie, this true truly will be a never-ending story. Good night. Good night. Good night. Wait, we're at the beach. Everybody had matching towels. Somebody went under a dock, and there they saw a rock. It wasn't a rock. What's a rock? folks thanks for listening to we love to watch thank you so much for listening to our show and we've got just a few quick announcements for you there ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs baby if you'd like to talk to us uh tell us we're stupid tell us we're beautiful the quickest way to get to us is our facebook group facebook.com slash we love to watch or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, 
We don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available, if you don't use iTunes, we're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, TuneIn. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening. So we love to watch.